0: Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Camara Coffee. Let's get real for a moment. We all love us some coffee. We got the boost in mental clarity, energy, mood. But what's the downside? Lots of these coffee brands do more harm than good in terms of our long-term energy. We get that crash. Camara Coffee solved that problem. And this is where it gets really cool. Camara Coffee sources their single origin beans from over 5,000 feet of elevation Then they infuse it with the highest quality nootropics. What are nootropics? Well, if you've never heard of them, um, to simplify it, they're essentially brain vitamins. They help promote a bunch of stuff like focus, cognition, memory, and just mental health in general. So I was a bit skeptical, and then they sent me some. And, uh, you know, I pride myself being from Seattle. I'm a bit of a coffee purist. And I've been using this stuff before interviews, and I can notice a significant difference in my mental acuity. I think I'm more in tune with the guests and I can process things better in my head. There's always that awkward pause after we're done talking about something um, where I either have to ask the next question or follow up with what they said. And sometimes, I mean, I have this brain fog and it feels like I can't even do it. Um, But I switched to this over the past uh, five or six interviews and I've really noticed that gap in between the them finish talking and uh, me asking the next question has shrank. I'm going to continue using this. And if you want to try it, head on over to Camara Coffee. That's with a K. So it's K-I-M-E-R-A-K-O-F-F-E-E. Again, that's CamaraCoffee.com. And if you use the promo code PaleoHacks, all spelled out, you get 10% off your entire order.
1: 95%.
0: I'm sure you've heard before, that is the amount of diets that will quote unquote fail. With all the talk about knowledge, health, nutrition out there floating around more than ever, why is that percentage still so high? What are the missing links? And how do you make your diet work if you're trying to lose weight, get healthy, and get on track? That's what today's show is about. Hey, what's up, guys? Clark from Paleo Hacks here to talk about our weekly Thursday show. Thanks for joining us. Um... Today, we got Yoni Friedhoff coming on, talking about his work in clinical obesity. So talking about people who, uh, extreme cases of need to lose the weight. I mean, he's seen it all. And he comes on here and we talk about really cool things, such as post-traumatic dieting disorder, uh, energy intake, as to why you're not losing weight, not necessarily energy output. So the fact that people think it's a lot of... Um, Uh, what you exercise and what you uh, output and just get on the treadmill and run like the biggest loser does for three hours till you pass out. And that's the way to lose weight. But it's more and more and more about what you're not doing. Um, And so we just kind of discussed that. And then lastly, how to not be an Instagram husband and avoid being a human tripod. (laughs) So uh, really cool things in there. It was a blast talking to Yoni. PaleoHacks.com is the place to go for our blog articles and recipes mouth-watering stuff over there I made the bacon wrap dates the other night it was actually pretty easy you just wrap dates and bacon a little salt if you want pepper it was amazing um, that's over there archives are over there too listen to last week's show with Wendy Myers about heavy metals awesome stuff you want to get a hold of me clark at clarkdanger.com shoot me an email and I will respond all right you ready for the show? I'm ready for you to hear it. Let's go hear what Yoni has to say. Paleo Hackers, my next guest is an MD, university professor, dad, speaker, and author. His book, The Diet Fix, was the number one Canadian best-selling book. Here with us today, Dr. Yoni Friedhoff. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So, I went to your blog, and I have a really serious question right off the bat, Yoni. Um, <laughs> Are you an Instagram husband?
1: I am not an Instagram husband, no. My wife, uh, she does post some pictures, but she is not as savvy as some of the Instagrammers out there, that's for sure.
0: There was a video Yoni posted as a as a Fun Friday video, and it uh, basically uh, poked fun at the fact that a lot of us guys and long-term relationships get caught behind the camera for the uh the good sake of instagram so that was a funny one though
1: and probably girls too i know some guys who like taking a lot of pictures of themselves it's probably not just one way
0: i've been known to make my girlfriend the human <laughs> selfie stick for me I'm, I'm quite a diva when it comes to instagram <laughs> so aside from uh the instagram husband uh MD. It's a pretty rigorous path to get there. University professor. I'm. I'm curious how you got interested in health.
1: Well, so it was partly by accident, I guess. You know, I actively skipped most of the nutrition lectures in medical school. Um, we, I went to University of Toronto, and uh, we actually have some prestigious folks over there. David Jenkins, who invented the glycemic index. I Remember, he was the one who was teaching us nutrition, huh. and I remember not not enjoying it at all. Um. And so I ended up going through medical school thinking perhaps I'd go into emergency medicine and then I did that for a while and found that the life and death stuff just made me sad rather than excited. Uh, and so I ended up going into family medicine. Family medicine is sort of a grab bag of everything and yeah. you see uh, you know, a little bit of a lot of things. And what I did see a lot of though was obesity for sure and other what would be describable as chronic non-communicable diseases diseases like diabetes and hypertension and high cholesterol, diseases that do respond to lifestyle change. And people kept asking me, you know, what diet should I go on? What program should I do? I didn't really have any answers. And so that plus a little bit of serendipity, it was before we had kids and uh, there was a conference on obesity that was being held in Las Vegas and I felt like going to Las Vegas and so I went and uh, I liked it. And then it sort of grew from there.
0: So you just kept learning more and more until – Okay. Yeah, so
1: there's there's only one body in North America that provides any certification in obesity medicine. It's called the American Board of Obesity Medicine. And so I pursued certification. I was the third uh, person who received uh, certification by that board in Canada. Uh, that was back in 2005. And my office that I run here, uh, we opened that in 2004 uh and I haven't looked back
0: i mean it's it's all I do, so you specialize then in obesity and weight loss,
1: yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it, so okay. you know I see myself much more as a clinician than I do as a researcher or anything else. Uh, I think that my my strengths and my practice has been trying to help people actually affect behavior change, mm-hmm. which is not an easy feat um I think we're okay at it um I think that it's one of those things where you know, there's uh, there's going to be people who respond to your style and your approach and people who don't. And that's yeah. true for anything. It's like medicine. There's some people who respond differently to different medicines. And it's the same idea with behavior change.
0: Yeah. So with obesity, then right off the bat, I'm kind of curious, what what's the difference between taking uh, maybe an obese person who's got so much uh, changes ahead of them and weight to lose versus uh, the typical American or Canadian who's 10, 20 pounds overweight. Is there, is there much of a difference there or is it pretty similar?
1: I think behavior change is difficult for everybody. I mean, we're all crappy at it, I think is the best way to put it. You know, yeah. think about all the things in our own lives that we know we should do better with, whether it's exercising, whether it's diet, whether it's in our relationships or our studies, we, we can often identify the things that would benefit us to change. It's hmm. just affecting those changes is a real challenge. And so some of the people who don't struggle with weight doesn't mean they live any better or any more healthfully as people who do struggle. I know plenty of people without weight on a scale who are incredibly unhealthy when it comes to their lifestyles. So, you know, I really do think that there's a lot of common ground just in general with behavior change uh, that we see uh, with people with obesity and people without.
0: That's really Awesome, you're focusing on behavior change and not necessarily just throwing information at people because um, that's a theme that comes up on the show time and time again. Is that information's not the problem? No one's smoking because of a lack of information on lung cancer. You know, you think- know,
1: and I think with weight too. It's I mean, given the incredible bias in society directed uh, angrily. At people with obesity. Nobody wants this. It's hmm. not something that people go to bed at night thinking, oh, I'm, I'm going to try to gain weight tomorrow or I, I don't want to lose weight. You yeah. know, the majority of people uh, with weight to lose do want to lose it. It's always the number one New Year's resolution every single year. Um, so when you've got a situation where the people with the condition desperately don't want to have the condition, And then you've also got a situation where there's a lot of people out there who are suggesting they know how to help those people. Um, What's the disconnect? And then uh, there may be listeners or viewers who who also are still stuck in the paradigm of, well, it's just eat less and move more and everybody will be fine. But I mean, that's as useful a truism as buy low, sell high is to becoming millionaires. (laughs) It doesn't work. It's true. It's definitely true, but it doesn't change anything.
0: Yeah, it's an oversimplification, which is dangerous. Yeah.
1: And so uh, we see that in obesity a huge amount. And I think it's only with obesity that people hmm. moralize about it. And what I mean by that is it's, it's thought that about 80% of chronic non-communicable diseases are preventable by way of lifestyle change. Wow. But the only one we moralize about is obesity. We don't moralize about diabetes. We don't moralize about hypertension. We don't moralize about uh, depression. We don't moralize about different cancers. And yet, Lifestyle will affect all of those things, in many cases, preventing or treating those problems. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it's an it's unfortunate situation that there's so much hatred, um, true hatred, uh, directed to people with obesity. And it starts at an incredibly young age. You mentioned I'm a dad. I've got three little girls. And so I'm stuck watching a lot of cartoons. Um, the, fat jokes exist in all these cartoons as well. I mean, yeah. it really is a remarkable thing.
0: Yeah. It's, it's gotta be hard too. I'm just trying to imagine what it would be like to be obese and, um, kind of be at the short end of the stick for society's jokes and cartoons and stuff like that. And, um, and you
1: know, uh, I, I was reading my girls, Harry Potter and, uh, you know, I, I couldn't help but think, I'm sure most people who are watching this have read Harry Potter or seen the movies and they'll know that there's the Dursley families, the cousins that Harry stayed with. And, you know, the Dursleys, they all had obesity, but their obesity, their weight was written in a way to personify their gluttony, their sloth, hmm. um, their laziness, their, you know, their evilness. I mean, and that is the way the world views people with obesity. And so the one thing people with obesity never lack is the societal foisting of guilt and shame onto them on a virtually daily basis. Yeah. Uh, so if guilt and shaming people actually helped. We wouldn't have this problem because everybody with obesity has plenty of guilt and shame directed at them.
0: So describe maybe an average person you're you're seeing who's obese and kind of the before and after if you have one because uh, I'm sure there's someone listening right now who's maybe tried so many different diets. They're clinically obese and uh, they're feeling a little discouraged. Do you have any sort of before and after stories that come to mind? Well,
1: so, you know, as a physician, you're not allowed to talk about people directly. It's, it's one of those rules that we've got. You know, you can't even sort of give descriptors because mm-hmm. if somebody happens to recognize the descriptors, they could run into problem. But what I will say is we have three different programs running in my office. We work with regular adults whose weights are concerning to them and they want to lose weight through medical, non-surgical means. We're also responsible for processing about 20% of Ottawa where I live. Ottawa's uh, bariatric surgical patients work through us here as well. And then we work with parents of children whose weight are of concern. Uh, And again, I, I think what's important in the way we approach things where we may differ from some is our goal setting. And so the goal here is not some idealized weight. It's not BMI on a BMI table. It's not trying to get people to no longer be classifiable as having obesity. Uh, we call it best weight. it's a term I coined in two thousand and six, and a person's best weight is whatever weight they reach uh, when they're living the healthiest life they actually enjoy you know there 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 will come a point for anyone for lots of different reasons where they could not happily eat any less and they could not happily exercise anymore and their weight with that life is terrific that's their best um We accept our personal bests as great in everything except, it would seem, lifestyle change. Hmm. And so we try to instill that in every
0: single person we meet. So I was watching one of your YouTube videos and it was uh, our weight should be ideal, breaking that myth. Um, Is that what you're talking about right there?
1: Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, there is this belief that we should all be on a certain place in the scale. And it's not just a myth of societal, you know, it's not just society saying so or, or medical community. It's individuals, too. I mean, I I sometimes call it the Boston Marathon of weight loss. I'm I'm a really slow runner. Um, I like running. I've been running since I was 16 years old. But, you know, my ancestors did not chase down animals. We must have trapped them because I am biomechanically rather useless. Um, So I will never qualify for Boston. But if I thought to myself that the only purpose in running or the only true runners or the only value would be to qualify, I would have quit decades ago because I'm never getting there. You know, I think with weight management, the number of people who get to their, you know, dream places with weight loss or the healthy BMI, you know, it's as rare as a runner getting qualifying for Boston. It happens, but. If that's the goal, you're going to likely fail. And so instead, it's enjoying running and not having artificially built goals. And here I'm not talking about smart goals. I'm just talking about realistic goals. I mean, this is real life where food is a comfort. It's a celebration. And if you can't use food as a comfort or a celebration, you're going to stop whatever diet is restricting your ability to live like a normal human being.
0: That brings to mind, I had a friend who was super into the fitness modeling competitions, and he would get down to crazy low numbers of body fat, uh, somewhere like 5%, even below 7 and he'd be ripped out of his mind for that one day or the photo shoot, and I'd ask him, how do you feel? And he says, miserable, yeah. you know, because he's restricting water, he's restricting all this. So where I'm getting at is to even compare yourself with the ideal. On the outside, it might look all good and dandy, but on the inside, even those people they don't feel good. They don't feel like the ideal. So maybe that's not the ideal after all.
1: Yeah, it might not be. And, you know, sticking with Boston as an example, I mean, there are runners out there, you know, who really can do distance regularly and enjoy themselves and find it wonderful. Um, you know, the, the, our, the head of our training program here in my office, uh, she's qualified for Boston. She's running Boston uh, next month. Um, she's miserable with how much she has to write, write, run right now. Like, she, she, it's, she's a mom. She's got a couple of kids. She's working really hard to get the long runs in. She's not yet at her taper time. And, you know, it, it doesn't look fun at all. And in many cases, the amount of sacrifice and suffering required to lose everything yeah. um, brings you into a realm of non-sustainable approach. And and that is, again, temporary. You know, temporary efforts only have temporary outcomes.
0: So your book, The Diet Fix, uh, Why Diets Fail uh, and How to Make Yours Work, I I guess when someone comes up to you on the street or in your clinic and they show you your book and they say, okay, why do diets fail? We kind of went over that. But how do you make diets work? What is your approach?
1: I mean, the the overarching idea is that we have to eliminate suffering. And so that's different for different people, right? So I, I don't believe that there's one right diet. I'm very egalitarian. Whatever diet a person enjoys enough to sustain that actually helps them live a healthier life, I'm all for, whether it's paleo, whether it's low carb, whether it's low fat, whether it's vegan, I really don't care. So long as a person can honestly say to me, I could happily live like this for the rest of my life. And so the, the goal in the Diet Fix the book is to help give people a tool with which to figure out, well, how do I tweak what I'm doing to make it livable long-term? It might lead to a slower loss, it might lead to a lesser loss. But the hope is is that it leads to a more permanent loss because ultimately that's all, all that really matters.
0: Sure. And are, are some of the principles in The Diet Fix, um, would they be compatible with like a, a low-carb or a real food diet? or, a, so or?
1: They, They'd be compatible with anything. I mean, that, that was the point. So a lot of the book is about attitudes. It's about trying to cultivate this idea of best weight. It's about trying to accept the fact that personal bests are great and that there is no right place to be, and that our best efforts will vary. You know, I just booked a trip with my wife for the first vacation we've had in two years without kids, and we're heading to Jamaica to one of those all-inclusive places, and I guarantee you the the best that I will do without kids at a Jamaican all-inclusive is not going to be as good. So having this dynamic best, uh, embracing imperfection, because it's certainly not going to be perfect, I think is crucial. People sometimes they, they really pigeonhole themselves into particular diets and then when they sort of sin and they break their religious diet they feel so much guilt eventually they quit and trying to take that away from whatever approach a person is is undergoing uh, is a really important piece that uh, I think spans diets as a whole because what we're trying to fix is the attitude of people towards dieting and weight loss in general. Not any one particular diet.
0: Yeah. You're going to be an Instagram husband in Jamaica for sure. (laughs) We'll see. So um, I saw a chapter titled uh, PTDD, post-traumatic dieting disorder, and I love that. Um, And so that kind of ties in. I guess you can explain it with the whole guilt and, and shame aspect.
1: Yeah. So, you know, again, it doesn't affect everybody who loses weight, but plenty of people who, especially people who have lost weight and regained it multiple times. And unfortunately, that's a large number of people. um, It's beyond disappointing, right? So regaining your weight after you've lost it, of course, it's a disappointment. People work hard to lose their weight. They gain it back. It's disappointing. But there's certainly a percentage of people for whom it goes way beyond simple disappointment. And it reaches more into the realm of true depression, uh, where it affects a person's self-esteem, it affects their relationship with others and with themselves. it reflects it affects their self-efficacy and their feelings of self-worth. Um, it can be a really devastating thing. And so I've called it post-traumatic dieting disorder because, you know that is what we're seeing is we're seeing these people uh, undertake recurrent sort of traumatic diets and then develop this sort of syndromal, feelings of very negative feelings that in turn span more into mental health i'm not suggesting it should be in the dsm-5 i don't think it needs its own you know its own criteria it's a bit uh, uh, more illustrative than it is a diagnostic but i do think it is a real phenomenon that for some people um it is far more than just disappointing to regain their weight
0: yeah so, someone who's regained their weight comes up to you on the street, and they say, "Dr. Friedoff, I've I've tried everything. I've tried, you know, dieting. I got PTDD, or I got guilt and shame around it. How do I lose the weight? I'm ready. Um, what are kind of some strategies that you recommend to people out there?"
1: Sure. So, I mean, over over the the we've got a what I call the ten day reset in the book, and so what we're trying to do in those ten days is not to affect a miraculous amount of weight loss but to try to change the way people approach weight management and sort of the thinking around it. Uh, Some of the basic principles, keeping track is huge. You know, so the studies on keeping track, whether it's calories, whether it's carbs, whether it's macros, whether it's just particular foods, Mm -hmm. keeping track in some form is hugely powerful. So we certainly, or I certainly encourage people uh, to keep track. Personally, I used calories in a food diary. really doesn't matter. Uh, Keeping track has value beyond the numbers that are actually being tracked. Keeping track is a tool that reminds people to change behavior. The other thing I feel strongly about is for people who struggle with weight, and especially people who struggle with what they would describe as control, hunger is not a friendly thing. So there are people out there who are fine when they're faced with hunger. Those generally aren't the people that I meet. You know, the people that I meet when faced with hunger, and hunger is not just growling in a stomach, it's Uh, cravings and compulsive uh, drive to eat. Uh, Those are just flip sides of the same coin. Um, Hunger's not their friend. And so I think people sometimes, you know, they they can understand what I'm getting at when they think about supermarket shopping. You go shopping to the supermarket when you're hungry. Studies have been done, and we didn't need studies to know this. You you shop differently, right? Like you do. Everybody does. Sit down to a meal hungry, and now you're shopping from your plate, your cupboard, your freezer, a menu. The choices will be really different. And so Cultivating a diet, dietary approach that takes away cravings and hunger is crucial. Generally, in the book, what I recommend is what seems to work for the majority of people in the office here, which is um, the you know old school multiple meals, multiple snacks throughout the day. That said, we've got people in my office who are you know having three meals a day. We've got people who are doing two meals in terms of sort of the the uh, sort of kind of if approach that people have been taking for a while i don't have anybody on alternate day fasts at this point but i'd certainly be open to it if somebody was interested all this to say um the goal is the control of intake without it being a huge fight all the time because you know food is one of the seminal pleasures of our lives all of our lives you know, again, food, it's the second most important thing we do behind breathing. And we've got mechanisms and physiology in our bodies that drive us to do so, that trump reason uh, when we're hungry. And so taking that away is really important to me. And then combining those two things together, what we're looking to have people do in the Diet Fix and in our offices here is to identify what matters for them you know, to try to use that tool, that food diary, whatever you're tracking, to also track hunger and cravings and control and start looking for patterns. Um, You know, you get a frame of reference. It's like my kids do science fair experiments. They get a hypothesis and then they test different um, experimental uh, modalities on that hypothesis. It's the same idea. Uh, But, you know, and, and giving people, again, the permission to not be stuck with one rigid approach, because I think the rigidity breaks people.
0: Yeah, that kind of dogmatic, you have to do five meals a day, or you have to do one meal a day, and then skip five, or um, again, kind of what we talked about earlier, it's not necessarily about the information, it's about the application, and so um, when people come out saying, you only have to eat one meal a day, and I've tried it, well, I'm a lot more hungry, and I eat a lot worse during that one meal than if I were eating five or six
1: yeah. And I've seen that myself personally. So I'm Jewish. And so we have one day a year. I mean, I'm not a religious guy. I don't believe in an angry man in the sky. But for whatever reason, uh, every year I do, like many people in my religion, we do this fast called Yom Kippur, where it's 26 hours, no eating or drinking. And so I kept a food diary for three years without missing a day just to know exactly what's involved and be able to wow. you know, understand what I was asking my patients to do. And what was interesting is each of those three years, when I looked at what I ate at the end of that fast, so this is a once-a-day meal, I consumed more in the way of calories than I would when I was having multiple meals and snacks. And I wasn't, we weren't gorging on indulgent food. At the end of 26 hours, nobody wants to cook anything. It's like, you know, it's stereotype food. It's bagels and cream cheese and lux and quiche and you know, nothing that's difficult. But you're so hungry, you put it away so fast, it, it, it makes a big impact. And so again, there are those who do well on that approach, but uh, I've not found them to be fairly common. There's a rare individual, I think, who really uh, enjoys that approach enough to want to be on it forever and where they don't go overboard when they do finally eat each day.
0: It could be really mentally taxing, that whole kind of binging and fasting approach and uh... – it 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 develops an unhealthy relationship with food. I've noticed for myself. I think about food way too much when I'm not eating, and then when I am eating, I'm uh I'm getting all these these uh, buzzers going off in my head. The pleasure sensors are just on overload.
1: Yeah, you know there there's people who love it. You know, so Brad Pilon from Eat Stop Eat, and uh, he's a friend of mine, and he, he finds. I mean, I I don't want to speak for him, but certainly in the discussions we've had online about this sort of thing. It sounds like he really enjoys it. You know, it doesn't tax him. But you know, I think about my experiences, and maybe it's just a matter of getting used to it. Mm-hmm. But you know, I, I dread that day each year. <laughs> it's yeah. not a fun day.
0: <laughs> yeah, he was on the show, and he said something that I've always laughed about. He says that the reason people obsess about food is because, for a lot of people, it's the one awesome thing they have left. Yeah, you know, like they have, and it
1: never lets you down, right? So yeah. everything else in our lives. Unfortunately, from time to time, will let us down. Our loved ones, our jobs, ourselves. Um, but not food. You know, if you love Chunky Monkey, um, you know Ben and Jerry's, it will always be awesome. It will never let you down. And that is a rare thing in life to have a permanent thing that you can always take pleasure from. And food's unique that way.
0: Yeah, you hit me with uh, Ben and Jerry's Chunky Monkey. <laughs> uh, that comes up on the show a lot. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I want to touch on something I heard in one of your videos. I wrote it down. It said energy intake is, oh, as, energy intake as to why you're not losing weight, not about energy output. Um, so it's not necessarily like getting on the stair steppers or going to CrossFit and outputting, outputting, outputting to lose weight, but you really got to manage what you're taking in and, and prioritize that. Is is yeah, it's too accurate?
1: bad, but it's true. So, you know, I've called it uh, exercise. Exercise is the world's best drug, but it's not a weight loss drug. And it's not for a few reasons. So, and the, the studies are clear on this. In a laboratory setting, it doesn't matter whether you don't eat 500 calories or you burn 500 calories. It has about the same effect. We don't live in laboratories. So in real life, we have a bad habit of eating back our exercise. I know I do. Um, I imagine you do, too. We all do. We feel like we've earned the right to eat more indulgently when we're doing a better job with our fitness. Yeah. Um, we're also, as a society, being primed to think that we're supposed to do that, right, from recovery beverages and refueling and electrolytes and all that nonsense, because it, it really is nonsense for 99.99% of the population. There. Truly, you know, the endurance athletes might need to care about that stuff. Professional athletes, maybe too. But everybody else, probably not. And um, So we're conditioned to think we're supposed to eat it back. We tend to reward ourselves for our exercise, and that's going to change things. And then there was this cool study that came out just a few weeks ago talking about something that the researchers called constrained energy expenditure. I'm not sure if you saw the study. But what the study found was that what you would expect if you're looking at total daily energy expenditure... You'd expect that as you exercised, your total daily energy expenditure would go up linearly, like you'd see this you know, linear rise. That's right. not what, what they found. What they found, and again, using objective measures with calorimeters and, and doubly labeled water and so forth, was what they called constrained energy expenditure, which is as your exercise rose mm-hmm. – your total daily energy expenditure got blunted and started coming off, where basically your body was turning itself down because you were doing too much. It was trying to conserve energy in the face of clearly a very bad hunter who was not managing to catch its prey and trying to keep the body alive longer. Uh, It was a very unfortunate finding, but it does help to explain why when we look at studies of 20 years' worth of physical activity to see if it correlates with um, weight loss or weight in general, Mm-hmm. The best studies basically show that huge amount of exercise slow down weight gain. But they certainly don't reverse it.
0: Do they specify what kind of exercise in that study?
1: In, in the constrained energy expenditure study, I don't recall off the top of my head. I'm sorry. Um, I don't remember what they were doing at the time. But you know, that's the other thing that I sometimes talk about when I give uh, talks on exercise. So the American College of Sports Medicine says that you need to exercise 300 minutes a week to prevent weight gain, 300 is a lot of minutes for most of us. I mean, so I happen to own a gym, like my office where I am now, just down the hall, there is a gym. So I, I have access to uh, facilities that most people don't. And I have a job where, you know, I talk about this all the time. I've got to walk my talk. Um, but, you know, in a good week, I'm probably doing to 240, not more, And if when I give these talks and I'm giving these talks to healthcare professionals who are interested in nutrition and obesity and I ask for hands for the number of people who are exercising enough to simply not gain weight, you know, I get like two out of a hundred. It's a rarity. Hmm. And so yet we see exercise being billed in society as the ticket to the weight loss express in part because of idiotic TV shows like the biggest loser or, uh, extreme makeover weight loss edition, whatever the hell that's called. Yeah. Um, but it is a perpetual message that we have to
0: fight against.
1: You lose weight in the kitchen, you gain health in the gym. It's not, they're not, they're not one and the same.
0: Yeah. That's fascinating with the, uh, the weight loss thing. So, um, What about like long, steady cardio to burn off fat? I've heard that at a low heart rate, it's really effective.
1: You know, and so that's where I guess I come into things as the clinician who believes in being pragmatic and realistic. So ultimately, you know, if the question is, what's the best exercise for for weight management? What's the best exercise for fat loss or anything like that? You know, the answer, as trite as it sounds, is whichever one your patient or your client likes enough to keep doing. Like there, there is no right. It doesn't matter, you know. It's whatever you enjoy enough to do is good. Um, And I I would generally encourage people, from a health perspective, to mix it up. It'd be good to have some resistance training for sure. So as far as functional independence goes, functional independence—that's the term we give to being able to wipe your own body parts for longer. Um, You know, just being able to live on your own as you get older. Um, that resistance seems to be key. So getting, you know, clients who are older into resistance training, I think that there's a real role for that Uh, aerobic training, endurance training. There's a role probably for that too. And as far as cardiac health goes, maybe there is for body fat, but I've never seen anything convincing as you probably know, you can find whatever you want in the medical literature. You know, you can find studies that support whatever position you've got, whether it's, um, which exercise is best what meal frequency is best, what diet is best. You will find support for your assertions in the medical literature. And if you want to then ignore all of the other studies that say otherwise, you can. But, you know, it's, there is no best because there's so many different people uh, with so many different real-life things having a bearing on both diet and exercise. You know, it, it, it's, it almost becomes counterproductive to even have a discussion with somebody about what would the best one be for this rather than what would be the one you would actually like to keep doing, which I think has much more value to people.
0: Yeah, it's like if you go into Barnes and Noble in January, you see the table out front of the 50,000 diet books and all of them have before and after photos in them and testimonials and this diet's great regardless of if they're eating grains, dairies, sugars. I mean, there's a lot out there when people apply that seems to work, but they all have that underlying theme of A, applying it, and B, uh, managing the intake, it seems like, not necessarily yeah. the output.
1: And I, But I think that there are, again, there are success stories everywhere. So I write a little bit about the National Weight Control Registry, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, but for people who might not be, the average, so the registry was established in the 90s. So that was the low-fat era of weight management. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what they did was they took, it was before the internet, or before it was big, they took ads out in, I think, Cosmopolitan Magazine. Uh, asking people if, you know, if you've lost weight and kept it off 30 pounds for more than a year, then you are allowed to apply to become a registrant. And then they would then try to explore, what are you guys so much better at than everybody else? I believe there's over 10,000 people in the registry now, Hmm. where the average person in the registry has lost 67 pounds and kept it off for five and a half years. So they're really good at what they do, but they do all sorts of different things, right? So There's low-fat people. There's low-carb people. I'm sure by now there's paleo people. Um, There's people who lost it with all-liquid diets and then managed to keep it off otherwise. There's people who it took them seven years to lose the weight. Um, It's everything. It's the whole gamut of stuff. But I'd be willing to wager if you interviewed those 10,000 people and just asked them specifically about whether they feel what they're doing is suffering, they'd likely say no. I think that is their secret. Hmm. They enjoy their lives enough to keep doing it. It's for sure effort. You know, the inconvenient truth of healthy living is that effort is absolutely required. But I think when the effort is suffering, people ultimately quit.
0: That's going to be the uh, the Facebook uh, quote for uh, <laughs> this video right there. That was good. I like that because you're so right on with uh, taking those people and, uh, you know, doing doing what they like instead of suffering and that when it's not fun and you link all this pain to it, you're less likely to follow through. Um, So going back then, I guess, to kind of universal things that seem to work for 90% of people. Yeah. Um, what are some of those? You mentioned a food log. That, that's, yeah. that's really good. a yeah, so
1: food log, not being hungry. Uh, big ones are restaurants and liquid calories. I mean, they're both huge in society nowadays. And liquid calories are ridiculous. You know, the amount of liquid calories people are drinking on a daily basis, uh-huh. you know, it doesn't even matter whether it's from, you know, sugar-sweetened beverages. I know everybody likes to point their fingers at, at Coca-Cola, me too. But uh, people are drinking plenty of uh, other liquid calories. Um, I treat them like I would treat any sort of treat in a sense. It's the smallest amount of liquid calories you need in your life to like your life. I need, you know, a good 150, 200 worth of scotch most days. You know, that's, that's where I spend my liquid calories. Um, but I don't have them anywhere else. I don't drink milk. I don't drink juice. I don't drink soda pop. Um, I don't put cream in my, or, or or anything in my coffee, not because I'm opposed to any of those things. I just don't think it's worth it to me. And then restaurants is, is enormous. I mean, restaurants, the amount of restaurant frequency of the people who I see in my office is staggering. You know, Hmm. people, it's more common that I will meet someone who's eating at a restaurant or takeout or a supermarket takeout or fast food, uh, four times a week. than it will be for me to meet somebody who's eating less than four times a month. I mean, it's so strange. And you look from this Skype call to be very young. Um, I am less young. Young, young and fit. Yeah, so I, I am less young. And I can tell you, like the, the old curmudgeonly, you know, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, like restaurants were a really rare treat, really rare. And, I, you know, I talked to anybody from my generation or older and it, it was a rarity. We didn't do it. It wasn't, you know, celebrating the fact it was Thursday. You know, we went to, for birthdays and we went, you know, when we we're traveling for sure. But But that was it. Um, And so that is a huge piece, getting back into our kitchens. That's one of the things I actually love about paleo in general um, is the emphasis on cooking. Uh, I think that that is one of the best things about you know paleo as a whole is there's so much more emphasis from people who care about paleo to cook from fresh whole ingredients. And ultimately, I think that if we could get people cooking 95% of their meals from fresh whole ingredients, it almost doesn't matter what they're making them out of you know, of course, some of them will be less nutritious than others, but that would go a hell of a long way. You know, restaurants, their job is to make food indulgent. Mm-hmm. And and it, it you know, the, the eggs in the restaurant taste good because they've been fried in two tablespoons of butter. Like you don't do that at home or most people don't do that at home, at least not if they're worried about weight. Um, so ultimately getting out of restaurants is a universal thing. Again, it's the smallest number of meals out you need to like your life. And that will differ some people need to eat out because it's part of their job requirements, and some people are more social than others. I, I think of my single patients who are you know, in their 40s or their 50s. Um, you know, for them, eating out is a huge part of their social lives, and social lives are part of health too. Yeah. And so it, it's figuring out what will work for an individual, but minimizing that would be huge, and minimizing liquid calories is huge as well.
0: Okay, so food log, liquid calories, eating out... Um, what do you what's your diet look like? What do you do to achieve kind of well, where you're so happy?
1: my diet, I mean, I'm a lucky man, so I would describe my diet as 85% of what my wife gives me and 15% whatever the hell I want. Um Sounds but good. you know, if we look at what we do, I mean, we're definitely not I'm guessing that, you know, as far as macros go, I'm probably 45% carbs, 25% protein, you know, 30% fat. I think that works out to the right numbers. Uh, that'd be my guess um, off the top of my head, uh, but I've never actually crunched my macros to see what they look like. Um, we do cook the vast majority of our meals from fresh whole ingredients. I've got three little girls, so my oldest is eleven, my youngest is six, and they're involved in cooking. Uh, we do, they do meal planning. So every Sunday, they, we've got a, a whiteboard on the fridge. And the kids take turns, and they're each responsible for laying out the entire week's breakfast, lunches, dinners, and snacks. Hmm. Um, you know, it's uh, we treat the kitchen with respect. You know, we've cultivated as a room of love and as happiness, and not a room where we just throw our keys and heat up boxes and mix them with jars. And and I think that, you know, from a kid perspective, it's such a strange thing. Society now, you know, we've got a society that prioritizes kids leaving home knowing how to play soccer or or hockey, but not knowing how to cook um, 10 meals from fresh whole ingredients. And so we've tried to reverse that. And uh, again, it does take effort, you know, and sometimes a lot of effort. So Thursday nights, my wife works, I come home and so I've got to do the kids' lunches, clean their lunch bags, pack the lunches, make the dinner and so forth. I'm in the kitchen for a good two, three hours. But I mean, I throw myself in front of a bus for my children. Why wouldn't I cook for them? I mean, we're building them out of the foods we give them. Literally, I want to give them good ones.
0: Yeah, we got a lot of parents listening right now um, and kids' nutrition and educating them is something I'm really fascinated in. It's funny you bring it up. We have Joe Cross coming on in 30 minutes or so. He did the new uh, documentary called The Kid's Menu. I was just watching it. It's all about – he did the fat, sick, nearly dead one um, and so this is his new one. But, uh, empowering kids and educating them and teaching them, uh, do you have any advice for parents out there if they have kids and they're trying to get well, them interested?
1: certainly uh, I, one of the main pieces of advice I would give is not to make it about obesity, not to make it about health, not to make it just you know it's hmm. parenting's easy to describe and tough to do. you know you want to live the life you want your kid to live. I mean that's parenting, that's all of parenting. Hmm. It doesn't matter what what you want you know and so again. I'm a dad of three girls. I just came from my accountant. It's year end over here, and, and he's a younger dad, and he was asking me some questions about things, and I, I explained to him that I, I not only try to live the life that I want my kids to live, but I'm also trying to be the man that I hope one day they will look for to marry, in a sense. So I help around the house and I cook, and I'm kind to my wife, and you know, I I, I think we forget that sometimes. Instead, we've got this sort of top down. Let's. Tell the kids what to do let's tell them how to live let's tell them to go outside and play. I think that we need to do those things you know we need to we need to role model them, we need to be them if you want your kids to go outside and play, go outside and play with them. like teach them that a normal family life is an active one. where I get concerned, and I have no idea I haven't watched the movie, so I'm not speaking against it I've, again, not a clue, but I, I always worry about. Um, the kids, as far as things like their self-esteem, their body image, their relationship with food. And, uh, and you know, these are kids. Kids do not have fully developed frontal lobes. Kids do not have insight. And kids hear things n- in ways that we don't intend them. Hmm. And so, you know, I worry about the messaging around this stuff with kids, which is why I think instead teaching by doing is the best way to go. That doesn't mean you can't have discussions around things. So for instance, you know, an important piece for sure, you know we were talking about liquid calories. Um, so I talk about the fact I don't like to, you know waste my energy. I'd rather eat my food than drink my food. Um, but I don't talk about why. I just talk about that's what I prefer because that's what kids tend to role model and do. And if they ask why, I'll answer. Um, Clean Your Plate Club is an unfortunate club that still exists in many families. I make a big show from time to time about not cleaning my plate. You know, I've had enough. I've, when I've had enough, I don't want to have any more. You don't need to if you, you know, it, it, that is the way I want kids to get taught, not by way of sort of education, if that makes any sense. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. It It's, again, kind of emphasizing what not to do versus showing them what to do. And I think the showing them what you said, the modeling is more powerful.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's a rare household where the kids do not, at least when they're young, um, want to be like mom and dad. I mean, that's, that's just what childhood's all about. Of course it, it ends, you know. So uh, as my kids are getting older, I see it. I mean, every day that goes by, you've got less influence on your children, literally. Hmm. Um, but my hope is is that we establish enough of a foundation of what family life is supposed to look like in their mind's eyes that even if they don't follow those ideals throughout their teenage years or even their early 20s, when they do settle down and have families of their own, they'll remember that this was the way they were brought up and hopefully, unless we're doing a horrible job of it, want to emulate that.
0: Yoni, we're coming up on time, man. This has been a really fun call. A couple more questions that we end the call on for all our guests. Um, This one's my favorite one. Over the last year, What's been the biggest lesson you've learned uh, in regards to health, wellness, or your work? Oh,
1: well, I mean, so this is, I guess, cryptic. But the biggest lesson is not <laughs> – it's, uh, it's got to have to – how would I put it? You can't assume things. And so – we're working, for instance, with our Ministry of Health here in Ontario. we've got two programs that are free in a sense I mean they're not free because we pay for them out of taxpayer dollars, but they're funded by the Ministry of Health. We love our programs they're awesome programs, but you can't assume that decision making is going to be rational about the things that you care about in your life, even if you've got good outcomes, even if you uh, are a tremendous trainer or a dietitian or a doctor or whatever you are, it doesn't change the fact that life sometimes throws curveballs and Uh, I, it's easy to kind of forget about that when you hit your stride and you think, oh, listen, everything's going to come up roses. It doesn't always come up roses.
0: Yeah. Uh, what are some of your favorite resources or books or, uh, where do you get your information? What's your favorite? To
1: to be honest, my favorite is Twitter. I I am a huge, huge Twitter user. I love Twitter. I love Twitter because basically if you use it properly, which is sort of, only reading the people who you care about. I mean, I follow a ton of people, but I've got a list, a private list of the people whose stuff that I, I want to read on an everyday basis. Um, they become this personal curation device where they identify the things that are actually important enough to read. Hmm. Um, the other thing that's amazing about Twitter is the ability to reach people you would otherwise never be able to reach. I mean, send an email to some fancy mucky muck somewhere, you're not likely going to get a response, but tweet to them and you might. And then you can also forge real relationships. I've got real professional relationships and real friendships that have come out of Twitter. Uh, I find it an invaluable tool.
0: Awesome. Um, so the book, The Diet Fix, uh, you working on anything new?
1: Well, so I've got a second book that uh, we're shopping around. It's more about actually family life and kids and uh, how to, mm. to affect a healthy family and uh, looking a little bit at sort of the the onslaught of sh- crappy food that's pushed on the kids wherever they go. Uh, but we, uh, we're still looking for that the right publisher at this point.
0: Okay. So the Diet Fix uh, available on Amazon, is that the p- best place to get it? I,
1: if it's North America, you can get it anywhere because that that's easy. I mean it might be in some brick-and-mortar places but certainly mm-hmm. any online real- retailer. Um, the rest of the world, it's more difficult because we didn't sell the global rights.
0: Okay. And then, uh, for you, the best place to find you is your website,
1: my website, Twitter. I'm the only Yoni Friedhoff on the planet. So I'm very easy to locate. <laughs> it's and, nice to have a name uh, like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, but yeah, my, my website's weightymatters.ca cause I'm here in Canada and uh, my Twitter handle is just my name, Yoni Friedhoff. And, uh, Unfortunately, I'm pathologically attached to the internet, so I'm there pretty regularly.
0: (laughs) All right, guys. We'll let them know what you thought of the show. Uh, We'll throw up the Twitter handle right here. Um, Dr. Friedhoff, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. This was a fun one. Had a blast talking to you, and I I love your non-dogmatic approach. I think the health community needs a lot more of that out there, especially with what you do, uh, handling obesity. Um, It's really important, so thanks for what you you do.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.